Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm continuing to try and get episodes out each week, regardless of whether I've got a guest lined up or not. After all, we're all probably talking to ourselves at this point, so I figure what's the difference. Now, last week I went into some detail about Peter Weir's 2003 nautical adventure movie, Master and Commander, and I've gotten some amazing reaction. That episode was really a labor of love because I tried to explain in some detail and across a few different planes exactly why the film is one of my all-time favorites. This week, though, I just want to have some fun. I'm emulating Cindy Lauper. So before we get to the film I want to talk about today, let me tell you a little bit about how I stumbled across it. So the other night I was scrolling through looking for something but didn't really know what I was in the mood for. I kind of felt like I was in the mood for something mid-80s, maybe sci-fi-y, and Amazon recommended Starman, which is a 1984 film starring Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. It's the story of an extraterrestrial who takes the form of a deceased husband, goes on a cross-country road trip with the widow, and of course, they fall in love. There's a star baby made. There's some fisticuffs with rednecks. A deer is brought back to life. All sorts of Americana takes place. There's a chase. The government's involved. There's a cover-up. And every time I stumble across this movie, there's a sense of surprise that I experience when I remember that what turns out to be this kind of wonderful, unexpectedly inventive love story, sci-fi, road picture, extraterrestrial mashup was directed by none other than John Carpenter. Yeah, that John Carpenter. Weird, right? Well, it turns out it's not as weird as it might seem when we consider the origin story of the movie. And that's what I want to focus on in this brief episode because... This is one of those movies where the story behind the movie is as good as the movie itself. And I do encourage you to see the movie if you hadn't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while. It's a great, great watch. So first, being surprised that it's directed by John Carpenter. You know, it's a good reminder that I shouldn't be too surprised when a great director directs a great movie outside of their genre. I put that in air quotes. It's a reminder that too often we put directors or they put themselves into these genre boxes and it's as if only certain types of prestige dramas are where directors get singled out as auteurs or craftspeople capable of making films of the highest order in any genre they choose. I was reminded of this again in that recent spate of excellent films I watched from the Canadian director, Ted Kotcheff, whose filmography is more like a roadmap of your 70s and 80s film childhood than it is the work of any single director. Wake and Fright, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, Fun with Dick and Jane, North Dallas 40, First Blood, and of course, Weekend at Bernie's. Richard! Gwen! Gwen. It's Gwen! Hi, Gwen! You know, you've got to be the weirdest guy I've ever met. You told me Bernie was dead, right? I just saw you with him. Now, what's your explanation this time? Gwen! 
I don't mean to be rude when I say this, but get the hell out of here. No, I'm not going anywhere until you tell me what's going on. Listen to me! You're in a lot of danger here, so please leave oh, unless you want to get shot and killed because the cops are going to come Look, honey, Lomax is dead here. Somebody's trying to kill us. Can we stay at your house till the cops come or what? It's just Bernie! You'd be hard-pressed to name six more wildly different films. And yet, they're all Ted Kotcheff films. They're each excellent in their own right. And at least three of them, Wake and Fright, North Dallas 40, and First Blood, are also the most superlative example of the thing they do. You know, Wake and Fright is easily the greatest movie about Australia ever made. And don't take my word for it. That's Nick Cave's opinion. So if you disagree, feel free to bring it up with him. North Dallas 40 is clearly the greatest movie about the NFL ever made. And First Blood is the only good Rambo movie. And it's by far the best film Sly Stallone ever appeared in. And it features the best on-screen acting by Sly Stallone. So those are some hot takes for you. So anyway, when I was in the mood for something kind of 80s and feel good, thank you, Amazon Prime AI, for recommending Starman. In 1977, Voyager 2 was launched into space to the outermost regions of the universe. It carried an invitation in all languages for alien life forms to visit our planet. Someone, somewhere, listened and accepted our invitation. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of me. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. Oh, God. I send greetings. What's the matter with you? How much English do you understand? I understand readings in 54 planet Earth languages. Do you seriously expect me to tell the president that an alien has landed, assumed the identity of a dead house painter, and is presently out tooling around the countryside in a hopped up 1977 Mustang? You're not from around here, are you? Think of what it would mean to talk to a being from a civilization like that. Think of what we could learn. Understand there isn't much time, please. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Can't you just leave him alone? What the hell ever happened to good manners? We invited him here. So far to come. So much to do. So little time to fall in love. Look up. Company's coming. John Carpenter's Starman. By the way, my wife walked in when I was watching Starman and she said, oh my God, are you watching Starman? I love Starman. I've seen Starman like 30 times. I love that movie. And I can assure you she doesn't say that about any other John Carpenter movie. So Starman, let's consider. Like most sci-fi space alien movies of the 70s and 80s, Starman's development was to some degree inspired by, affected by, tangled up with, and diverted by Steven Spielberg's script for a film called Night Skies, which... Spielberg conceived of doing after he filmed Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977. Originally called Watch the Night Skies, 
the script originated when Columbia wanted a sequel to Close Encounters, which Spielberg didn't really want to do. But he also, and this is where, you know, they say Hollywood is like high school, but with money. He also didn't want them to make a sequel with anyone else. So he wrote a much darker script than Close Encounters was. He wrote a film that had malevolent aliens, one in which thanks Wikipedia, 11 malicious extraterrestrial scientists try to communicate with chickens, cows, and other livestock in an attempt to discover which of Earth's animal species are sentient before turning their unwelcome attentions on the human family and dissecting their farm animals. So it's a little far away from do-do-do-do-do. Starman was optioned or uh, put in development at Columbia before Night Skies, but as we'll see, such was the clout and fear of Spielberg at the time that being first in this case didn't end up meaning that Starman had a clear runway to a green light. Michael Douglas, the actor and director and producer, was responsible for Columbia purchasing the initial Starman script, and writer Dean Reisner worked on a version of the script with six, count them, six different directors. Dean Reisner is one of the heroes of our story, as you shall see. Meanwhile, Spielberg's filming Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's starting to have second thoughts about this kind of horror, angry aliens concept that he thought of originally. To quote Stephen, I might have taken leave of my senses. Throughout the production of Raiders, I was in between killing Nazis, blowing up flying wings, and having Harrison Ford and all this high serialized adventure. I was sitting there in the middle of Tunisia, scratching my head and saying, I got to get back to the tranquility or at least the spirituality of Close Encounters with the script for Night Skies. So by this point, John Sayles had taken a pass at the Night Skies script. And apparently it was John Sayles who added an E.T. with a glowing extended finger who befriends a family's son. And after that script, Spielberg takes it and pushes it even more into the Close Encounters feel-good zone with an alien not hell-bent on dissecting farm animals and humans. So now, Columbia, the studio, has two films in development that they feel occupy similar spaces. They have Night Skies and they have Starman. Now, the difference was the Spielberg one, having come very far from its origination as a darker picture with angry aliens dissecting humans, was now deemed internally to be a kid's movie, a Disney movie. And these were said kind of pejoratively. Because Starman was considered to be this weighty film that wrestled with, you know, adult topics and, and, and was a serious movie. So now Columbia had two films they felt occupied similar spaces. The difference was the Spielberg one, coming really far from its origination as a dark picture with these angry aliens, was now deemed internally to be a kid's movie, a Disney movie. And these were pejorative things. These were things that caused them to put Night Skies in turnaround, which means you know what? We're not making this anymore. If another studio wants to make us whole on the money we spent developing it to date, you're welcome to take it and produce it on your own. And that's just what happens. Universal picks up Night Skies. This Hollywood thinking was, of course, validated just a few years later in 1982 when Night Skies, having been renamed E.T. the Extraterrestrial, becomes a global phenomenon, grosses $359 million dollars on a budget of $10.5 million, and leads to generations of parents yelling at their kids to stop grinding Reese's Pieces into worldwide carpeting. So here's where we really enter the twilight zone of studio thinking.
and through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. So, now that E.T. is a massive worldwide hit, the executives at Columbia, who'd let it go because they thought it was too different from Starman, now they thought something new. Now they thought that given the box office success of E.T., Starman was, guess what? It's now too similar to E.T. Welcome to Hollywood. So the answer to that, let's throw some directors at the project. Let's throw some different types of directors at it so that they impose their thing on the movie. Maybe that will make a difference. So they bring in Adrian Lyne. Uh, at that point, he'd only directed one feature, uh, the Jodie Foster coming-of-age melodrama Foxes. So he's on the project for a while, but he eventually leaves to direct Flashdance, which, let's be honest, is probably a better use of his budding desire to film steam coming up from manhole covers on wet streets and neon bar lights and dousing strippers with water and other examples of what in Hollywood over lunches they don't really eat they call his oeuvre. So Adrian departs Starman. Enter John Badham. John Badham, you see, directed the hell out of Saturday Night Fever. He did Blue Thunder with Scheider. He was on board as director of Starman. Until one night he went to the movies. Guess what he saw? E.T. That's right. So the very next day, he decided, you know what? Actually, I think I'm going to do War Games with Matthew Broderick instead. Incidentally, War Games is a bit of a sore subject over here at uh, Full Cast and Crew Global Headquarters. Because in the first year of the pod, Chris and I were so in the mood for war games. We watched war games. We did tons of research on war games. And we got so far into all the backstory and the making of stuff. And it turned out to be such a fascinating and interesting movie. I kind of equate it to almost Heather's in terms of how into the backstory we got and how, how fun and rewarding all the making of anecdotes were. So we got together. We recorded this amazing episode that we just knew had we had killed it. We had like just hit all the points and everyone was so in the mood for a, a retro film like War Games and we were going to release this episode and, you know, we were really excited about it. And then, ironically, for a podcast about a movie about a sentient computer program, our episode, it just disappeared. It got lost or I dropped a Reese's piece in the computer or something, but it was unrecoverable. We could never play it. We didn't have enough of it to stitch together and the whole thing is just a great never was. So it's out there somewhere. Anyway, yeah. so John Badham's like, yeah, no, and he departs. I mean, imagine seeing E.T. for the first time and knowing that your very next film is going to also be about an alien who crash lands in the U.S. and goes on a wild adventure with humans who come to love him before he must return home or die trying. So here's where you might think Hollywood having first encouraged and supported the differences between Starman and E.T., and then deciding, no, 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 you know what? Now, actually, we think they're too similar. They would have painted themselves into a corner, right? They must have exhausted all possible takes 
to have about Starman. <laughs> that right there is the laughter of anyone who's ever dealt with any studio or network executives. And those people are laughing because they know exactly what I'm about to say next. They know the kind of spineless, craven, jelly-legged, intellectually dishonest thing that the Columbia studio execs next tasked our poor writer Dean Reisner with. Dean Reisner, who is now awaiting his fourth director on Starman, they tasked him with, and I quote, Reisner was charged with keeping Starman essentially the same while simultaneously making it distinct from E.T. Same but different. Now that is some excellent studio executive brainstorming. That's the kind of really helpful, constructive feedback that lets a studio exec feel like they really put their fingerprints on a project and still have time to grab a table at the Ivy. Making those kinds of pronouncements is what a big-time producer does, and they get handsomely rewarded, usually for things working out despite their involvement. And since, let's be honest, there's no real work or thinking involved, there's plenty of time for recreational drug use and recreational marriages. You know, Hollywood. And you wonder why Don Simpson died on a gold toilet while reading a biography of Oliver Stone. All right, it wasn't a gold toilet, but I like to think it was. Anyway, I digress. So Dean Weiser, still our hero, still plugging away. Two more directors come and go. Tony Scott, let's bring in Tony Scott, right? Big action, atmospherics. Dramatic pronouncements, Mav. Droll military matter-of-factness, Gene Hackman in Crimson Tide. Is that understood, Lieutenant Hunter? You know, extreme close-ups, canted angles, misty rooms with curtains pulled against the daylight. Yeah, Tony Scott. So he exits to direct The Hunger with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie instead of Starman. And then he does Top Gun. Peter Hyams came aboard. Wanted to make a very conventional science fiction film. Peter Hyams leaves. Went on to direct the completely unnecessary sequel to 2001, inventively titled 2010. And then in the darkest of days, after five years of development hell, five different directors, in walks, of all people, John Carpenter. John Carpenter is coming off The Thing, which, as discussed on our previous episode about The Thing and about its absolute mastery and brilliance as a film, The Thing was so good, so exceptionally conceived and directed, so astoundingly assured and pitch-perfectly executed that it nearly destroyed John Carpenter's career. It was the biggest flop of his career. A film that today is heralded amongst the top one or two or three horror science fiction movies ever made was a colossal near-career-ending failure for John Carpenter. The horror and sci-fi press, who had loved John Carpenter, they were so head over their heels with E.T. and feeling warm and fuzzy about the kinds of things that were happening on screen in a movie like that, that they just couldn't get behind a movie where a guy loses his hands in the chest teeth of a dead guy that he's defibrillating on a, you know, torturously abandoned Arctic research station. So as they say in the business, John was available to take a meeting on Starman. And thank God he was, because if the thing had been a hit, then John Carpenter surely never would have directed Starman, and it would have languished in development hell for another three or four years until Somebody at the studio either abandoned it or said, hey, you know who'd be great as the Starman? How about Balky from Perfect Strangers? And like Peter Horton would have directed it. And it would have ended up being really pedestrian and run-of-the-mill and uninspiring and forgetful and unworthy of your attention. But John Carpenter, in a little bit of a sneaky countercultural rope-a-dope, turns out to actually be the perfect director for Starman because he has a creative vision for the movie. And the vision he has is not, as even 
non-Hollywood executives might be forgiven for thinking to turn it into some gore-soaked splatter fest. No, John Carpenter understands that the script presents an opportunity to do a really unique love story, one that's shot through with themes of loss and acceptance and tolerance. And John Carpenter, of all people, understands that the script is a way to tell a story about two lovers on the run, but also to upend the typical male-centered narrative of those kinds of movies. So in John Carpenter's Starman, it's the male character. It's the Jeff Bridges role who is the naif, the childlike innocent, the blank slate. In other words, in Hollywood terms, he's the female character. And Karen Allen is the hard-bitten, closed-off-to-love cynic with a romantic heart underneath it all, uh, who traditionally in Hollywood is the male role. So John Carpenter mixes those things up. And he, he sees it as a screwball romance mixed with a road picture, mixed with a government conspiracy thriller, mixed with the best kind of science fiction. You know, the kind that's reasoned out and has logic to it. So he made a movie that was all of those things. And in doing so, he made one of the truly most interesting examples of all those types of movies. So what are the joys of Starman as a viewer? Like all Carpenter films, it's the control of the setting, the pacing, the way the plot unfolds through the language of his camera movement and his commitment to brave ideas about character and staying true to all that. Uh, it's about finding an actor in Jeff Bridges who could really convincingly, with zero prosthetics, zero special effects, really believably render a version of what an E.T. taking a human form might actually move and sound like. Right? So it's a little off-putting when you see it at first because it's kind of believably real with the way he moves his body and his head and his gestures. And there's, there's obviously put a lot of thought into the way we do things as humans and how an entity from another galaxy wouldn't necessarily understand how to move their body or speak language or do any of these things in the innate way that we do. So you can imagine sitting in the screening room at Columbia when these dailies come in and all the execs are taking their seats. And of course, they're probably waiting on the most important exec who's just making them all wait to remind them of his importance. And then somebody shouts up to the booth, roll it, you know, and then they see and they hear what Jeff Bridges does in this movie. It's so different. It's, 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 it's real. It's plausibly real. It feels like the way an ET might move and talk when the world is all new to them. It's, it's brave is what it is. And it probably, out of context, looking at, you know, snippets of film in a session where you're just looking at dailies, man, it probably does not inspire a lot of confidence at first. You know, it's like when, you know, Evans and all the execs at Paramount were watching the first shots of Pacino as Michael in The Godfather, and they're like, what is this? This guy's not even doing anything. He's not talking. He's not, he's, he's not emoting. His face isn't moving. He's, what is he doing? Of course, once you see it all put together, you understand the genius of the performance. So that's kind of the first stop where now we have to give some of the, we have to give some of the execs some credit because for however it happened, maybe they just given up at this point. They were like, hey, whatever, just, just get this thing made. But they, they let that happen, which I think is brave. And then Karen Allen. Oh my God. The whole movie does not work without Karen Allen opposite our star man. It has to be Karen Allen. She's perfect. 
She's wounded, but her heart and her decency is never in question. Even when she's doing the wrong thing, like we're with her because it's actually the right thing. So it's like, yeah, you should abandon this freaky guy who's in the body of your dead husband and brings deer back to life in a truck stop parking lot. Like, get away from that guy. That's like the smart thing to do. Get on with your life. It's 1984. Go take some Est classes. Have a fling with Scientology. Get your head together, girl. And then get back on out there. Retake your life. You got the whole rest of your life ahead of you. Don't let this star man kook abandon your dreams. But she's the heart and the center of the movie. Her character is the smart character who figures shit out and gets them out of jams. And Jeff Bridges and John Carpenter, they let her be the center. Like, she's not just shunted aside. It's actually her story. The movie should really be called I'm with Starman. I think this is important. It speaks to what we, you know, think we know about Jeff Bridges, the dude. And you should see our Big Lebowski episode. And also Get Better Jeff. He's been struggling with cancer recently. The thing we know is that we think he's a genuinely nice and good person. You know, he's not bigfooting Karen Allen, demanding all the best lines and the close-ups and other insecure actor shit. And then, of course, there's like a science fiction movie, so there's all this exposition stuff, there's government stuff, there's science stuff, and Carpenter handles all this really expertly. I mean, admittedly, he puts most of it in the mouth of uh, that guy, Charles Martin Smith, who explicates expertly on all manner of space-time continuums and the essential, essential decency of treating Starman like an invited guest, because after all, we did send that gold-plated LP into space with a, you know, come on down to Earth message on the V'ger, as they say, in the Wrath of Khan. Not Rathacon, the other one, the one with the bald girl. Also available as a highly entertaining episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. So there's only one special effects scene, which, of course, being John Carpenter, there's no less than three complete legends of the special effects craft contributing to it. You have Dick Smith, Stan Winston, Rick Baker, the three godhead figures of the special effects industry. They made this like really simple but shockingly effective and haunting sequence where the energy force of the Starman, which is depicted as a blue ball of light with kind of a voyeuristic complex, uh, taking the form of Scott, who's Jenny's deceased husband. Jenny's is played by Karen Allen. So the Starman finds a lock of Scott's hair in a photo book and clones Scott back from the DNA. So later when Starman and Jenny share a tender love scene, probably the only love scene Carpenter ever filmed where someone isn't slaughtered afterwards, he knocks her up with a star baby. And it's Scott's baby because he's Scott. It's Scott's DNA. And we learn then that Jenny and Scott couldn't have a baby. And then all of a sudden, in this amazing kind of callback to the beginning of the movie, where Karen Allen is watching home movies of Scott and her and kind of crying and, you know, smoking and drinking and obviously bereft, all of a sudden, when you think back, you realize that what was etched on Scott and Jenny's faces in those home movie scenes was the fact that they couldn't have a baby together and that that was also a loss that she suffered in addition to the loss of her husband. And so when, when she gets the star baby, it's Scott's baby, but it's also Starman's baby. And... I guess the bad news is the star baby grows up 14 years later to star in a very ill-fated TV version of Starman, which stars Robert Hayes. Who are you? Your mother was my friend. What do you want from me? I want to help you. 
I'll bring you the alien. The creature, the being right on your table. You really are my father. Yes. Do you think we'll ever find my mom? We'll find her. Hey, sometimes you gotta do your best, you know? So Starman is funny, it's moving, it's unabashedly hopeful, it's not cynical, it has great casting in all the ancillary parts. Interesting casting. And shout out to Jennifer Shaw, the casting director. The only complaint I would make is I'm not really a big fan of the score. It's a Jack Nitschke score. I'm not really a fan of many of his scores. I think that was such a kind of trend in the 70s and the 80s. He just kind of just did a lot of these scores that I just find kind of forgettable. But, you know, maybe I'm not listening the right way or I haven't heard the good ones. But I'm of the mind where, and, you know, you guys probably know this, but John Carpenter really composed most of his own music for his movies. This was one that I think would have been really interesting to be able to hear Carpenter's take on what this type of a score would have been. And I wish that he'd gotten the opportunity to stretch and compose some of this because that would have been really interesting. He actually said the studio wouldn't let him do that. He wanted to do that. They basically said, you know, look, you can do whatever you want in your horror movies, but, you know, hey, we're, we're doing a big romantic love story, a sci-fi movie. We need to call in an expert. So, but it's, that's a minor quibble and the movie holds up great. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's a worthy rewatch. Oh, and remember I said Dean Reisner was going to be the hero of our story? Dean Reisner, the writer who worked on seven different rewrites of Starman with six different directors. At the end, the triumphant end where they finally make this movie, he didn't receive any screen credit as a writer. <laughs> because the Writers Guild and in its infinite wisdom decided that given all of the things that had happened, he probably didn't contribute 50% or more of the screenplay. Welcome to Hollywood, kids. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>